0: Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting-edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the Blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. We have a very exciting special episode of the show for you today. On the other side of the mic is my guest and friend, Raul Pal, co-founder and CEO at Real Vision. Just saw you not too long ago in the Bahamas before That's the right. whole... That's back when everyone was smiling and things were going well, <laughs> relatively well, and now... Uh, It's never
1: crypto winter in the Bahamas, and it's not in the Cayman Islands either. It's always sunny (laughs) here.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's almost like you can stare at the chart, and if it upsets you too much or gets you too depressed, you can go run on the beach or look at the water, the ocean, and almost forget that you're in crypto.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's the best way to deal
0: with it. So let's kind of just start there. Obviously, most people did not see this coming, the extent to which there was so much leverage in the system. And we know there was a lot of retail leverage. I mean, you, you know, the meme of 100x leveraging crypto has always been there, but I don't think the amount of institutional leverage that existed and was concentrated in Three Arrows Capital was fully appreciated by the market. Why do you think everyone got caught on the wrong side?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And it reminds me a lot, of long-term capital management, which was a hedge fund that blew up in the late 90s that caused massive ramifications, what you find is is there's a lot of people making a lot of money when you've got a big customer. When that big customer is everybody's big customer, you suddenly are running risks that you didn't know you ran, and that's liquidity risk. And what happened is that big customer didn't prove to be as smart as everybody thought they were. And it all blew up. Now, I don't think any of us realized that essentially the entire CeFi market was one borrower. <laughs> we, just, we just didn't know it. So, yeah. you know, we assumed that these markets were deeper than they are. We're like, you know, we can use BlockFi, we can use Celsius, we can do this, we can do that. When in fact, it was all being back. You know, everyone's like, we all, we've we all interviewed these people on our platforms and We've said where does the yield come from? Oh well, there's market makers. There's borrow- exactly
0: every time you talk to these people, it sounds like there's not ten participants, but a hundred. I remember you know when I was speaking with Steve Ehrlich in the Bahamas, and I asked him the exact question you just you just posited, which was where does the yield come from? And it's it was exactly what you said. There are all these market making firms, trading firms that need stablecoin or they need to borrow to engage in different strategies. And it didn't sound like it was 60, 70% Suzu and Kyle Davies. It sounded far more robust than that. And what do you think? Not to interrupt you, because you, you had a good thread going there, but do you think they understood the concentration even internally, or were they misrepresenting it to us?
1: Well, did the lenders know this? Well, I go back to the long term capital management. Thing. I was heavily involved in that. So I was a salesman selling them shit that they were putting on their balance sheet. And I did billions of this stuff in equity <laughs> derivatives. And I was on a stag weekend in Ireland with a bunch of mates who all worked in financial markets. And it's the usual after a few beers who's your biggest customer? Oh, long term capital. How much have you got with them? Oh, four billion. Right. This is a, this at the time was a $3.5 billion hedge fund. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, four billion. How much have you got? Two billion. I'm like, well, I've got about six billion because obviously I was a better salesman than they were. Um, And then then I spoke to the head of bond trading. So now we're moving away from equities into bonds. And the guy goes, oh, about 100 billion. Mm -hmm. I was like, holy shit. Mm. And I realized that, again, none of us knew. We all thought we were being amazing by having this great customer. We knew that they were doing business around the street. Mm -hmm. We didn't know that they were almost everybody's biggest customer by a long way. And it wasn't until that moment I went back to see the risk management team. I was working at NatWest Markets at the time and said, Listen, we've got a problem here. And people just didn't realize. So I'm not sure how any of these firms actually realized because they never really got on. You know, Celsius never got on with BlockFi, never got on with whoever. So nobody's talking to each other Mm -hmm. and there's no system of clearing it. Now, if it was on chain, we'd be able to see it, but we couldn't. And that was the big problem. Now, did three hours capital know what they were doing? Well, I think long-term capital management thought they knew what they were doing, and they were smart people, and they priced every single risk except one, which was liquidity. Mm -hmm. And I think we've probably gone through the same thing here. So, you know, humans are humans. They love leverage. They can't avoid it. They love it almost as much as sex and Mm -hmm. alcohol, and they will create excess leverage at all times. I mean, we see it in the retail market. And now we've seen it in the institutional market. But the the beautiful thing was, is DeFi worked. Mm-hmm. It just keeps doing its thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Why do you think they didn't dig deeper into the balance sheet of this counterparty?
1: Because everybody was raising capital and making money. Mm-hmm. And it's this merry-go-round of, look how amazing this is, this is the future, we're printing all of this money, we're doing yield, everyone's like, this is incredible, this is like you know fintech in a different way, here have another 100 million. Nobody's incentivized to be cautious.
0: Mm.
1: Now, if a bank was running a CeFi business, they'd have been much more cautious because regulation and use of regulatory capital, which doesn't occur in this space.
0: <laughs> what you said reminds me of the quote from Charlie Munger, which is that smart men go broke three ways liquor, ladies, and leverage, the three L's.
1: It's so, tr- it's so true. It's so true.
0: So, when we look to the future, right? I mean, I guess one silver lining in all of this is the fact that now that all the leverage has been sucked out, the lenders are pulling back loans. This kind of has to be the floor, right? I mean, before, to your point, the merry-go-round was going, the amount of capital being injected into the space was mounting, and the amount of leverage was unlike anything we could have imagined, and that was juicing everything up. Now all that leverage is gone. That has to give an indication that we've maybe bottomed out. This is the real floor of the market.
1: I think it's close whether we can call it the absolute low I kind of have a suspicion it is but I don't know but you can see how it's trading today for example today is a you know pretty bad macro day you know the dollar screaming higher and equities are going lower and crypto's up and it's like huh that's interesting because it feels that those participants the forced selling participants are, are out of the market as you say so we're definitely close to the low. And, you know, we can see it from everything from on-chain data to, you know, technical analysis to logarithmic. Tra- I mean, everything is saying it's it's here. And I think we just need the macro turn, really, before we can start to call that. But I th- the leverage is gone, and, and that's a good thing. Now, let's see where the next leverage cycle comes from. My guess is the capital providers to the space will end up being financial institutions. Mm. So I know that people like Apollo Blackstone you know the investment banks are all looking at how can they get involved because I know it's not a popular thing to say in crypto but those people understand risk and lending risk so it becomes interesting there's also another really interesting thing happening which is this move towards you know assuming that it goes ahead towards the eth merge I think we're going to end up creating a benchmark Web three interest rate, of which we can assess other risks against. So that makes risk management slightly more transparent. You know, why are you giving me ten percent interest when the ETH staking yield is four point eight percent? Therefore, you know, you know, it's ETH plus four hundred basis points or whatever it is. Okay, there's risk in that. I think you know we're going to be moving towards that, much as all capital markets are priced off treasury yields. So I think it's it's it, it's good because we need to grow up some of this stuff.
0: So you've been on the show three times or, or two or three, but the first time you were on, it was really early on in the pandemic. And I remember, I just feel like you were really right about the Fed. Just papering up the cracks was exactly what you said. And everybody was wrong about inflation, or most people were. Most people were wrong about the the ability of the Fed to sort of navigate the economy through this financial or economic and health crisis. And you didn't really have a lot of faith in them. And I feel like you saw where the macro picture was going. But at the same time, you were still very bullish on crypto. And I think even as late as November, you were like doubling down on ETH. How did you see this macro picture kind of deteriorating Wilt still being fairly bullish on crypto? And were you surprised at the degree to which the latter kind of unraveled?
1: Yeah. So firstly to go, because there's a lot of misinformation online about my doubling up on ETH, I used call options, which was, so therefore I had limited risk, but it gave me exposure, significantly larger exposure than I had. And that bet went wrong, which was fine. Why did it go wrong was a more important thing. And this is the one thing I did not see. A, I didn't think inflation would be this high. We knew it was going to be higher but I was kind of thinking 5%, yeah, you know, something like that, not 9%. But what I hadn't appreciated was what it did to the mechanics of the digital asset market. So this is a retail market. So when you take away purchasing power from average people, they invest less in crypto assets. Mm-hmm. So wages didn't go up as much as inflation. So everybody's taken a You know, a lower income on the chin. So you dollar cost average less. Mm -hmm. So we've seen, you know, the the number of holders remains high, the network activity remains okay, but the active addresses has fallen through the floor because people have just stopped buying. And it's just because the discretionary income's gone down. And I did not see that because, you know, I've not seen an episode of inflation in a country that's not used to inflation. There's plenty of high inflation countries around the world and they deal with it. As normal course of business i didn't see that and that was the thing that i missed
0: there's an interesting element in what you said which is how much of the sort of momentum that we saw in the crypto market was driven from stimulus i think i saw online not too long ago that one in ten americans used their entire or part of their stimulus on buying crypto. So they didn't obviously so much of the stimulus wasn't really needed, but there's an element of it sort of driving the market up. And once sort of their economic picture changed, to your point, they stopped buying and maybe that contributed to the pressure that we sort of saw. So there was two factors
1: there. One was the fiscal stimulus, which is giving direct transfer payments you're stuck at home, you want to play the game, and the game happened to be crypto. And we saw it with GameStop and all the other stuff, all the same stuff, fine. The other side of the equation was the central banks were debasing currency. So the more of currency you print, the lower its purchasing power versus scarce assets. So what we saw is stock markets optically, real estate markets optically, crypto markets optically rise significantly. What's interesting is once you divide these by the central bank balance sheet, most of them haven't actually risen. They've been trading sideways. They've just basically offset the the debasement of currency. Crypto did because it's a network adoption model, it's different. And NASDAQ did as well because technological advancement is kind of a secular mega trend right now. So part of it is optical, and the other part was pure stimulus going in. Now, the question I always ask is, was that wrong to give the stimulus? I kind of think if you shut down the world, you should pay people for it. Mm-hmm. Now, how they spend it, it's up to them. And again, if people have put their early stimulus, but check- didn't
0: it go on for too long? Is I think the question. It's not, nobody, at least I don't think, argues that there shouldn't have been any direct sort of payments to folks while there was mass unemployment or mounting unemployment. It was, it just went on for too long. Um. Probably. Sure.
1: However, I don't think the inflation that we're seeing now
0: is tied to that at all. Yeah.
1: I think it's a narrative fitting by people who want to believe stimulus is inflationary. And, you know, stimulus can be inflationary for short periods of time. We saw it with the Trump tax cut, stuff like that. You get this period where inflation comes up, but it tends to reverse very quickly. We've seen it in Japan for the last 30 years, particularly in these indebted aging economies. So, you know, what really drove this inflation was the supply issues. The supply issues are meaningful. And much like post-World War II, and I talk about this quite a lot, 1947. What happened in 47? Inflation went to 20%. Why? Well, there was no supply of commodities and goods because the world had been at war. Mm-hmm. And then you just suddenly unleashed every single person into the civilian labor force again and gave them an opportunity to buy stuff. And they had stimulus, tons of it. And what happened was prices exploded. The outcome was prices then went negative 18 months later. Mm-hmm. The economy wow. imploded. And we had this very volatile period of the economy going up and down in these wild swings for a period of time until it settled. You know. This pandemic was an unparalleled for us in our lifetime process. It did happen in World War Two, and we've seen that. That's the best example I've got. The market is stuck and fixated on the 1970s. 1974 was quite similar. So, 1974 we had the Arab oil embargo. Mm-hmm. So they shut off the supply of oil, and prices rose, and the economy went down the toilet really fast. And so did the stock market; fell 50 percent, and it, Recovered soon after as the Fed were cutting, even with inflation at this highs. But then we had a secondary inflation in 79. And that's what people are fixated on now. We're going to get this secondary bout of inflation. But that was driven largely by demographics. That was yeah. the largest cohort of people ever to enter the workforce at the same time in all recorded history, buying their first house, their first car, their first suit, their first tie, their first everything. Sure. So, of course, it's inflationary. So we don't have that set up. So I just don't think it's structurally there.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because each of these periods kind of had these unique elements that were relatively, you know, had never really happened before with, you know, a global, I mean, the devastation of World War II resulted in some weird things. And then you had this giant boom of adults entered the labor market. Now you have, or you had, a massive pandemic. We basically turn the world off for a month or so, and then try to kind of keep it at bay, and then turn it back on. It's never really been done before.
1: And also, that's with the mega trend of, potential mega trend of deglobalization. That's the wild card here. So if you say, what's different this time? It's this deglobalization, where we're not sure we really want to trade with China anymore. In the same way that we should have all of our trade linkages there because we don't know how people are going to act in this age. And we could talk a bit about the dollar later. We've got structural problems in the global economy that actually is incentivizing large commodity trading and trading nations to try and separate away from the dollar over time because the dollar is in short supply and too strong. Mm-hmm. So we're bifurcating the world. And so that does bring onshoring and brings. Building of factories and stuff in the United States or Mexico or Canada or, you know, in, in Europe depends whether that's inflationary or not. I don't think so because if you look at like Elon Musk's new factories, they're staffed by robots.
0: Sure. But there's supplies that go into the building of those factories, which can yeah. be inflationary. So let's think about inflation, where, where it's going. Everybody, you know, right before the CPI print, everybody says it's peak inflation, and then we get one that's hotter than the last. And then th- those people look silly. So maybe we'll look silly come the next one. But everyone's talking about oils kind of coming down a bit. That's obviously like what's been driving most of this inflation. Do you think that's an indicator that we're going to see the broader inflation come down? Or is that indicating that we might be going towards recession because people are driving less, they're they're worried about the economy, they're worried about the future. Is oil a sign of hope or a sign of distress?
1: Both. So why both? Oil was the last commodity market to fall. Almost everything else is down between 30 and 60%. So we've had some massive falls in commodities. So the cost of goods has been coming down, supply chains have been freeing up. Companies have built massive amounts of inventory, way too much inventory that's going to get liquidated. And to liquidate inventory, you tend to sell them at fire sale prices. So we've got all of the component parts, but oil was still sticky and oil's now kind of broken the the 95 level. And it feels to me that it is very linked to the business cycle. In fact, the year on year rate of change of oil is roughly the same as the looks the same as the ISM. And I think that oil could come down to as low as sixty dollars mm. in this. Now that's good because everyone's suffering from high prices. Totally, it's good because it lowers the rate of inflation.
0: It's good because I want to go on vacation in September and I don't want to pay astronomical exactly
1: and airline fees. And it's good because it means that interest rates will come down. It's only not good if you're an investor in, 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 in oil, oil. Yeah. you know. And that's what's happening right now. Is there's a quite an unwind of those bets going on in the market as well. People who invested in oil mining stocks because, you know, that's the safe place to hide because it's the only sector that's been up. while well, they've been getting
0: smashed. Mm-hmm. So why is it a sign of despair as well?
1: Despair is we are going to see a collapse in global growth. And I've been trying to allude to this on Twitter. I've tried to say explain to people that you know, this is as clear as it was to me ahead of the pandemic, what was about to happen, is all the forward-looking indicators I've got suggest that GDP growth is going to be sharply negative very fast. Mm-hmm. So when I look at a blended mix of the rate of change of interest rates, the rate of change of commodity prices, and the rate of change of the dollar, that gives me a financial conditions index that's quite broad, and it's the largest tightening of monetary conditions in history, and it perfectly predicts the ISM nine months out. And the ISM looks like it should be falling down to 35, which is as bad as 2008 and as bad as 1974. So we're talking about a very sharp decline in activity. So that's why people should be worried because, yeah, great, your gas price is gone, but you've lost your job. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. This is the outcomes that we've got. It's all bad for Mm -hmm. the time being. But eventually, you know, the seeds of this is the seeds of the recovery.
0: So in the second half of the year, are we going to be in a recession? Are we in a recession right now?
1: Probably. If not, we're going straight into one do not pass go. I mean, everything I look at says the deceleration of growth that we've got ahead of us or we're in the middle of is pretty scary.
0: China's really interesting right now as well. I think economists polled by the journal predicts that their GDP is going to expand by less than 1% for the quarter from April to June, which would be, I mean, one of the worst quarters in its you know modern history. It's just been hammered by its zero tolerance approach to COVID. And it might be an indicator that the sort of above 5% growth that it typically sees is a thing of the past. Well,
1: China has the Western disease, which is debt and demographics. It's very hard to generate high GDP growth in that environment, which is why China has been scrambling to go up the value chain, not being the cheap manufacturer, Mm -hmm. but trying to make the electronic goods and make the transition that Japan made.
0: Well, because Because they're not going to have the, the youth, the young population. There's already estimates that they've exaggerated their population by hundreds of millions of people.
1: And they've also overbuilt. Yeah. What are you going to do? Double the size of the cities all over again for all of these people that don't exist? There are already empty buildings all over China. You know, I've talked about that for a long time. So China's an issue, but interesting enough, the Chinese credit cycle, it actually leads the US business cycle by a year. And it marked the slowdown perfectly, and it's perfectly matched all the way. And what we're seeing is a sharp turn in that cycle. So the forward-looking expectations for China are actually getting more positive. This COVID thing is going to throw spanner in the works, but we've seen China expanding its money supply. And here's the first start. Because right now, in this pocket, we have no engine of growth, which is why this growth pocket is so terrifying, because there's nobody to counterbalance it. Mm-hmm. But there is a chance that China was the first into this and maybe the first out of it, it it does depend however on this covid situation
0: yeah do you think when you think about the the risks out there in the market where does covid currently exist is it still at the top of the list
1: i don't think so i mean my wife's currently locked in our guest apartment with covid and has been for nine days now um yeah that's one thing is i i don't know what impact that's had on demand Because everybody's had it, and everyone's been locked away for periods of time. Whether you're lucky and you were locked away for three days, or you're unlucky, you've you've had it for two weeks and felt terrible. So my guess is that that has some impact here. That you know, if and when we become more resilient to it as humans, you know, more people are in the labour force at various times. Whatever. I don't know. I don't think it's the big issue. China's policy is an issue because we don't know what it means for supply chains and. Mm Lord knows we don't need supply chains to freeze again, because you know we've got more problems. However, the world is prepared because we've got massive inventories, almost mm-hmm. the largest inventory build in history, is right now. So, kind of we can survive a long time with that new inventory because everybody overordered.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we haven't really talked about crypto that much, which is is somewhat surprising. I've talked about this with a few different guests in the show. It does feel like given the speed, the Twenty-four-seven nature of crypto, things just happen faster, right? Like even with the meltdown of Celsius, of Luna, of Three Arrows, that happened in a a month timeframe. Like it's just wild. I mean, it, it's like you had um, a mini 2008, which unraveled over the course of a year and a half. It just like compressed and. I think there's several unique dynamics about crypto that make it, I, I don't know if it's the speed of information or that 24-7 nature of the market, but it seems like crypto just gets to where the broader market is going first.
1: I agree. I agree. I um, mean, crypto is quite a good, it's been a good lead indicator for a lot of this stuff. Don't forget, it because it is a technology and a network adoption model, it tends to be further out the growth curve. So therefore it needs to focus further out into the future. Because you're not discounting current cash flows. You're looking at, you know, what is the future of the network adoption? So it tends to be faster to do it. Crypto, you know, very much traded in line with some of the growth end of tech, as it should do, because they're similar things, just different things. You know, whether you're talking about the adoption of AI or or crypto, they're broadly the same kind of thing. So I do think that we're, you know, as we talked about earlier on, very close to basing here, and that will be a lead indicator for the rest of the market. Now, do we have one whoosh lower that everybody expects? Possibly, but I think the equity market's probably got another sort of slightly larger leg to come, and I don't. I think crypto will start decoupling. We've seen the correlation between equities and crypto coming down, which is fascinating because you would have thought in peak growth fears it would be the same but it's not because peak inflation fears are behind us and you know the thing that i watch for this is the bond market mm-hmm. you know if i look at the um, the chart of 10 year yields 275 on 10 year yields would be a break of that i think is the green light that the inflation story is done and i think that is very positive for the crypto markets now they won't run massively on their own accord without a macro backdrop further. I mean, the biggest macro driver of crypto seems to be global money supply, year-on-year rate of change. But the Chinese are already increasing money supply. And our job as macro investors is to live 12 to 18 months in the future, particularly with these long-duration assets. And so what does the world look like in 12 to 18 months? Well, money supply is definitely growing because we're going through a recession. And therefore, there will be some change in stimulus pattern. So therefore at some point, crypto will be looking for a base to start positioning for that because that's the job of these long duration assets.
0: Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com and BlockFi gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, serratanium, and titanium aluminide. This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe white and woodland green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. Do you find it funny that every time we have a really red hot CPI print, Bitcoin pops and then goes down with the rest of the market? It's like, you know, the train that maybe could and then doesn't. <laughs> it's because people got
1: this stupid narrative in their heads that it's an inflation hedge.
0: But that was the narrative. This was the big narrative in twenty.
1: Yeah, but they misunderstood the difference between inflation and debasement. It's a debasement hedge, not an inflation hedge. An inflation hedge basically kills everybody, not even gold. You know, that was the whole narrative from the 70s. Well, when the inflation comes, when they print too much money and the inflation comes, you need to own gold. Well, gold's been a pile of shit. So therefore, nothing works in inflation, basically.
0: (laughs) Yeah, except I guess the dollar's not doing too bad.
1: Yeah the dollar's done pretty well and this is something that a lot of people who aren't in macro don't really focus on but the dollar is the big daddy of everything nothing matters more in this world
0: the chart against the euro is just just insane
1: yeah and the monthly chart is terrifying and the monthly chart of dollar yen is terrifying and you know i think we're brewing towards a big currency crisis if we're not careful And if the Fed are not careful, they're going to create this. Now, the dollar doesn't just go up because of interest rates. It also Mm -hmm. goes up because of growth fears. In bad growth environments, people want dollars. So people are kind of thinking, well, when the Fed starts saying they're going to pause, the dollar will come off. It's not 100% sure that's the case if we're in the middle of a nasty recession. Mm -hmm. So we need to be very, very careful here because you you can start blowing up places like South Korea which is pretty leveraged you know i was i posted the chart on twitter today it looks ugly a lot of this stuff looks very concerning and the dollar is a game of musical chairs the issue being is the us is 25% of world gdp but 87% of world trade is in dollars so what it basically means is there's not enough dollars for the system so it's all well and good when everybody's making money But when the central banks start withdrawing liquidity, it's a game of musical chairs. Mm -hmm. And somebody rips out the chair from you. And the first chair that went was Sri Lanka. Then it was probably the CeFi markets. And now it's it's the same musical chairs. Give me the dollars. Give me the dollars. Give me the dollars. There are no dollars. And I think that game is yet to play out. So that's a slightly scary one because, you know, this is the whole countries. you know, this is not a stock market This is not the value of some, this is the entire purchasing power of countries here. So we need to keep our eye on this one because this could be the big shoe to drop.
0: So what do you do, or rather at what levels does it become concerning? It's already concerning. It's already concerning, but like when that shoe drops. I think the big
1: concern would be the Chinese currency. So the Chinese currency has been weakening. And it looks like it's been this flag pattern, looks to be breaking further. But if that starts really moving, you know, starts getting above seven, seven Mm. and a half, then we've got stresses and strains in the system, because what you've got is the second largest trading block in the world, short of dollars. Mm. And we know that because they borrowed a ton of dollars. So that's where stress can become really significant. But on the positive side, the dollar going up is actually very disinflationary. Mm -hmm. or deflationary because all of these guys are exporters and so the cost of goods falls by the amount their currency's fallen so this is one of the other reasons i think we actually have deflation in 18 months and not inflation counter to the current narrative
0: well i mean you even said that way back on the first show that you did with us i think it was 2020 that deflation would be the bigger fear than inflation
1: and we had deflation clearly after the pandemic, and people have assumed that it's now reversed. But actually what we've done is like dropping a ball off the top of a building. It's bounced, come back up, it comes back down. This is what happened in the 40s as well, from the similar kind of environment. As I said, inflation in 47 was at 20%. By 49, it was negative six. By like 1950 or something, it was like plus six. And, you know, it's like the ball, the bounces start reducing over time, but uh, that's what I think we've got coming.
0: What about the S word? No one's talking about stagflation that much anymore.
1: Well, I always said this stagflation is again, one of these myths of the seventies,
0: right? Is is it real anymore? It's the baby
1: boomers bogeyman. Yeah. It's hidden under every rug, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, like you know, our generation. Well, not well. Your generation's bogeyman will be deflation and mm-hmm. central bank printing. You know, there's different generations have different bogeymen. So the boomers are all out in force about stagflation, but stagflation is just a phase from turning from inflation to a collapsing growth. So there's a period of time where inflation's high and growth is falling. We saw that in 2008. Inflation was still super hot, six percent or so. And the economy was already in recession, the Fed were cutting. But there's only been one period of really significant stagflation, was that late 70s period again, because we had demand-led inflation, very different.
0: So how are you positioning yourself right now?
1: So at a personal level, I've been adding the most to crypto I've added since November 2020. So this is not like buying call options, this is, you know, just scaling in as I can because the downside risk from here is let's say 30%. The upside is 10x. I'll take a 30 for one bet or whatever, you know, it's the risk reward is now becoming super ludicrous. Yeah. So it, it dwarfs anything else.
0: I mean, I think that's like pretty fair. Maybe fifty percent, but correct fifty percent. And versus 10x, I mean, that's a compelling, compelling. Yeah, and, and we're,
1: not, we're only talking over that's a three-year time horizon. We're not talking about the long-term network adoption where, you know, it goes up a lot further. So I don't think there's a better risk reward in the world, but you need to be able to stomach the volatility. So it's like, you don't use leverage, you know, the first term and and stick money in that you are prepared not to need. You know, you don't need it to pay your bills and do all of that stuff. So that's how I'm looking at it um, on a... Macro tactical basis, I've been buying bonds for the reason that we've talked about. I think inflation comes lower and growth comes lower. Mm -hmm. And bonds are the most mispriced currently of all assets versus the business cycle because of this huge narrative stagflation. The Fed are going to have to go even further and further. And I've seen this playbook many times before. And usually it finishes with a collapse in bond yields. Oil was the shoe that needed to fall, as we talked about earlier. That's now happening. So the last one up is bond yields.
0: I feel like with each of these cycles, and you've been in the game for so long, you learn something new each time. The scars sort of prepare you for the next downturn or the next sort of market cataclysmic event. And if I think back on the ICO boom, it's funny to me that that's kind of what brought down the market. There were all these scam projects doing nothing. Of relevance, or of you know, adding meaningful value. It's just white papers and dreams, and then in this cycle, it was kind of like who we thought were the grownups in the room, which is kind of scary. So it's like the people you wouldn't have expected. In hindsight, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. It kind of made sense that the 20, 2017 cycle deflated because there was just so much froth. But in this cycle, it was the frothy folks were the, you know, centralized businesses that we were supposed to trust. And maybe we had too much trust in them. And so
1: who's it going to be the next time? What we've got is a network adoption model, as I say endlessly. So retail was the network adoption in 2017. Mm -hmm. These other players were the ones of this cycle. The next cycle is going to be the
0: institutions. And they yeah, too the big the and bigger they institutions. too will
1: misjudge the volatility. They may not have the leverage, but they may be the forced sellers. So everybody who comes into this market has to take it on the chin a couple of times before they learn the volatility of the space. I was lucky because I first bought Bitcoin in 2013 at 200 bucks and it went up to 1000 in 3 months and I'm like clearly I'm a god. There's nobody better. There's Ah. nobody better. It then fell, but I had a long-term macro thesis. So I was looking at a 10-year bet or longer. And i had done written the first ever macro strategy piece for Bitcoin and said, listen, on a gold equivalent basis, um, it's worth about a million dollars. So I said, it's trading at 200. This is clearly the best risk reward anybody's ever been given in history. And I said, let's assume I'm an idiot, which I am let's discount my million dollar target by 90%. So therefore the target's a hundred grand. So there's me being as conservative as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's still at 200. It's still the best reward anybody's ever seen in their careers. So I took that bet. It went up five X. I'm like, see, I'm, I'm a total God, you know, genius. Then it falls 84%. And I just say, well, fine. You know, this is, I put the money in, I knew it was a call option and it has to have time to adopt. And then over time, I looked back in 2017 and I was up 10x. And I stupidly got out too early because of the forking wars. I thought, I don't know what's going on. Without really understanding Lindy effects mm-hmm. and you know S-curve moments and all of this stuff, I got out and then it went up another 10X and I felt like an idiot. And then it fell 80% again. And, you know, once you've been through this a few times you get to understand.
0: How did you feel post Luna? And what do you think you learned?
1: Well, I wasn't involved in Luna in any way. And I'd always had any time I've gone outside of Bitcoin and ETH, I've always just had an equally weighted basket that's small. Because I've always said this VC, we don't know what's going to succeed and what's going to fail.
0: So you weren't like gigalong Luna?
1: I didn't. I've never owned Luna in my entire life.
0: Oh, got it. (laughs) I just remember um, when you saw it was falling on... um...
1: You know why, Frank? This is really interesting. You know why? Because Remy, who works for me, who was a co-founder of Real Vision, Globe Macro Investor was all in on Luna. Got it. I also knew a few others.
0: You look like you
1: saw a ghost. That's right. Because I realized that Remy had wiped himself out. And to see a friend do that... That's what happened. Is
0: Horrific. all of the
1: people I knew, the the friends of mine at Delphi Digital. Yeah, you know, the, I'm like Jose, Remy. All of these people. I didn't. I still don't know how Novo got on in that. Whether he still had it. But it was that moment of me computing through my head. What does this mean? What does this mean for people I know? That that's what I was concerned at.
0: Do you think that moment has? made people think differently about trust. Crypto is, at its core, thinking about building trustless financial systems. But maybe, as individuals, we trusted too much, not just Doquan, but all sorts of different counterparties.
1: Yeah. First, I want to address one thing is that I got a lot of criticism for saying in a video which was cut out of a longer video. Oh yeah, Luna is a risk-free yield.
0: That's right. That's what it was. That's what it was.
1: The best that was cut out was the bit that said, "If you want to own that ecosystem, right? Domestic bonds of emerging markets almost never default because they print their own currency. What happened to Luna was identical. To what happened in the Argentina crisis and stuff like that. Yeah, is your payments came, but your payments were worthless. Right? It's the owning in that in that currency." That is the key part that everybody took away. And later I then said, also, we need to be able to benchmark risks because 20% risk is not. You are the game here. You need to understand what risk you're taking. So that was all cut out. So that kind of pisses me off. But, you know, it is part of the space. But I've always said that you don't have a right to network adoption Mm -hmm. and you don't have a right to risk, but always avoid hubris. So you might have said I was hubristic when I bought calls in ETH. Sure, because I had a very strong view, but I had a a defined risk-reward in doing that, and I lost that bet. So that was 5% of my ETH, which is like a bit off a spread in ETH on a busy day. But when people are hubristic at scale, you tend to have to be nervous because usually when you think your shit smells of roses, you're going to get your face rubbed in it. And Doe was one of those people. Yeah. Yeah. The way he spoke to people. You know, Tempting fate. Michael Saylor's another, you know, and maybe he escapes this cycle and didn't get liquidated. But that kind of hubris is always a red flag city to me.
0: Yeah. Pride comes before the fall. Always. Are we bullish again on ETH? I mean, with the upcoming merge and is thats is that a I tell can't one?
1: express how important this ETH merge is. Let's assume that it goes through, fine, let's assume. Um, and that's not, a, that's not a certainty, but assume that it does. I don't think anybody understands in the crypto space what it means to have a benchmark yield. And I'm going to use the expression again because people need to understand what I'm saying. In ETH, this will be a risk-free ETH yield, i.e. it is programmed into ETH itself. Now, whether ETH goes up or down, that's a different issue. That's currency risk. But to have a benchmark yield in the largest, second largest cryptocurrency, when everybody wants to allocate over time to Web3 as a theme, that is not counter to the FUD of the ESG narrative that Bitcoin has to battle with, it becomes incredibly attractive for institutions to allocate. It also means that we can then price risk. As I said, emerging markets are all priced like treasuries plus 400 basis points, and Junk bonds are quoted as spreads. I think everything's going to quote as a spread to ETH. And I've looked at this as well. I've gone through like Solana's yields versus ETH staking yield. They're basically volatility adjusted. So Solana is about 30% more volatile than ETH, and its yields is about 30% more. So you're kind of getting compensated for that. But it's going to give us benchmark abilities to understand this. And I think this is very important for the DeFi space and very important for institutional adoption. One of the reasons gold was not adopted by institutions is it had no yield. And many of the yeah. pension funds, they need to pay out pensioners, and they need a yield. And ETH is, is going to be a very robust yield. Whatever the, it settles at, call it between 5 and 8%, whatever the number is, doesn't really matter. That's great. And it trades at a premium to treasuries. Now, yes, you've got currency risk, which is ETH, but if you've made the one allocation, which is, I want to get into Web three or cryptocurrency, then ETH becomes an easy bet. So I think it's a really, really, really big deal um, in ways that people don't understand. And obviously, then behind that is the you know the amount that gets burnt, the supply issuance, etc. So you've got a enormous supply shock. Everybody locks up the ETH. The circulated supply of ETH reduces dramatically, and you've got probably institutional demand. So you've got a supply and demand imbalance mm-hmm. now. Does it cause problems with unlocks in two years' time or a year's time, You know, where you suddenly get a whoosh when everybody gets unlocked and they can sell their ETH? Maybe. Maybe it creates another dynamic in the market we don't know about. Right now, everyone's trying to solve it with the staked ETH, which trades at a discount, obviously, because that's liquidity. And the discount is the difference in liquidity. When people want liquidity, staked ETH will trade at a discount to ETH which is how markets should trade. But a lot of people didn't understand that either. They thought, well, they should be one for one. It's like, no, 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 no. They're only one for one in good times. In bad times, it should trade at a discount because you need to pay a liquidity premium.
0: Do you think there are any other risks like in crypto right now? I feel like after Three Arrows blew up, at least here at the block, we're thinking, okay, what what could be the next? The only, know, the only one
1: I've gone through this, like we're all doing, the only last one out there is micro strategies, but I think that's much further down. I think the kind of, yeah. the short put is lower down. So I'm not really concerned by it. And, you know, I kind of hope he succeeds because I love a bit of crazy sometimes. And I think, you know, what he did was crazy and look, investors bought the shares, they bought the convertibles, they're in it for the ride. So yeah, who cares what people say, right? That's that's the risk people are taking in owning that stock, and that's fine. So other than that, I don't see it. I mean, I guess something to do with one of the larger exchanges. Yeah. You know, a lot of people come to me, but these are usually kind of the boomer-style folks who come to me and go, well, Coinbase, they're going under.
0: Yeah. Given their public status, we have a bit of a view into... The robustness of the business. They've got quite a bit of cash. They've got insurance. They've got, you know, parameters in place to keep the lights on.
1: Yeah, I'm not concerned by it. But, you know, none of us are experts. True. You know, shit can happen. But, it can. you know, something like one of the bigger exchanges could be an issue. But, you know, we've thrown everything at it from Chinese bans to India going, yes, we're yeah. all in. No, we're not in. Yes, we're in. No, we're not in. All of this stuff. And
0: it's in the price.
1: I think regulation is now a net positive for the space as well.
0: That's another factor. That could be, it was funny. I was talking with a former executive at the New York Stock Exchange and we got drinks and it was days after Luna, but before Celsius. And so again, obviously we don't know anything. We don't know what we're talking about. And I'm, I was saying, I think that this, hopefully this is the end, you know? Um, And then Celsius blew up. So I I was kind of wrong. I felt like the bear market was going to go on for much longer but i didn't expect like the 3 arrows meltdown and i don't think anyone did but we were both kind of concerned about regulation and we thought that's what would sort of usher in like a really strong bear cycle but that hasn't really happened yet so do you think that can lead to even more pain i'm i'm actually
1: the reverse on that usually everybody's biggest fear creates an opposite reaction. And we've seen the indications of where regulation's going. And we know there's going to be a fight, and there's a lot of terms we need to fight over and blah, blah, blah. Generally speaking, it's going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. That's the UK, the EU, and the US. So if you are Ohio pension fund... And the regulators give you clarity and it's a non-correlated asset over an extended period of time, not passing correlations in risk times, you will allocate to this. So I think it's a very big positive of the space, the regulation, as long as they don't entirely ban it, which is not happening.
0: It's always going to be not as bad as you expect. And so then there's going to be some relief.
1: And it's good news for a lot of people who need regulatory clarity. You know, it's kind of very good news for people like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and BlackRock and all of these people. You know, people have a nightmare with DeFi. One of the issues, there's not enough capital Mm -hmm. in the crypto markets. It's very, you know, like the entire. Now there's a lot less. (laughs) There's a lot less now. But the entire hedge fund space in crypto, the entire thing is $4 billion. Yeah. While traditional markets are about two trillion in hedge funds, right? We have so little secondary capital, which is one of the reasons why Three AC and others were had such an outsized imprint. There's so little secondary capital, and one of the reasons has been this regulatory stuff. DeFi markets, as I said, people like Apollo and and Blackstone and the banks and all of these guys would love to provide capital at, at good yields. In ways that they can, but they can't because of in DeFi, you can't KYC and AML, which is why everyone's trying to spin up these compliant DeFi platforms. Because then you get unlimited capital, because that's where the trillions of dollars is. The trillions of dollars is not you and me sticking, you know, going behind the sofa and getting more coins to try and stick into the market.
0: (laughs) It's the hedgies. You tweeted on July 4th about digital sovereign states. I was celebrating America Day, so I missed it, but. Can you explain what you mean by the concept of digital sovereign states and how exactly crypto fits into this?
1: Yeah, I've been talking about this for a long time, and now Balaji's obviously written a book about it. Yeah. My view, before we started to see the larger use cases of Web3 and understanding crypto, back in about 2016, I started to realize that The world was becoming more polarized, and online, people spread into online communities and stuck with those communities. There were generally echo chambers of communities, and those people were building kind of these very strong moats around these communities. And I was like, okay, well, these are starting to be where a physical location doesn't matter, and you can align... Because if you think about society that we grew up in, you live in a town or a village or a city, you actually have to conform a lot to the, the societal think and the norms and the accepted norms, which is what regulates the society. Online, there's no regulation. You can be anybody you want to be, mm-hmm. and you can hang out with the most extreme people in the world, mm-hmm. whatever your view is. You know, you can have a Chihuahua haters club, you know, run by the Rottweiler owners, and you can have you know people who have black cats need to die clubs. I mean. You can be anybody you want with any view, and they coalesce online. In fact, algorithms force it to happen.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So, okay, I knew that, but then we started to see the rise of community as a business model anyway. And it had become very apparent, even at Real Vision, that we'd got a community first, more than even a product now. And we were like, okay, this is interesting. And I've, I've been writing about this internally since about 2018, 19. Then it was the realization after reading Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, and rereading for about the 10th time, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Yeah, great book. What makes up societies and states is basically the same kind of thing, same with religions, Mm -hmm. is there's usually a a leader or a set of leaders that are trusted. There's usually a mission or a purpose. There's an organizing set of principles, like the Ten Commandments or the Bible Mm -hmm. or whatever it may be, obviously connections between all of these people, the network, and then there's usually an organizing system of money or value. Now, even within the church, that exists. And the moment I saw social tokens, I knew this to be true immediately, that this is where it's going, that anybody can have their system of money. Now, if you step back and say, well, what is Bitcoin now? Bitcoin's pretty much a sovereign state a digital sovereign state it has its philosophies has its leaders it has its myth it has its organizing set of principles
0: it even has holidays
1: <laughs> it even has holidays
0: bitcoin pizza day it has mantras hodl so it has
1: leaders yeah it's a nation state which is why it's being defended so vigorously you know the bitcoin maximalism is the defense by those that want to defend the network or the state and so Once you see it through those eyes and understand network effects, you see it forming everywhere. And then you start to understand that, well, really, the music I'm into, part of that is the culture. Mm -hmm. And that this tokenization, we're going to be able to tokenize culture and communities and like-minded people. And it's already happening at scale, but people are seeing it and calling it something else. Bitcoin is clearly a digital sovereign state. And it's a one that concerns other sovereigns because of its scale. Why did Facebook get stopped from Libra so fast like nothing I've ever seen before? Because they came up with some magic, which was, we're going to have this equally weighted basket of currencies, not including the dollar or including just on an equally weighted basis. So we've got a world currency and we're going to use it for the currency of our network of 3 billion people. And everyone went, no, you're fucking not, not gonna happen.
0: <laughs>
1: because that is the most powerful state on earth. Yeah. So this is what digital sovereign states, but it also means that it becomes opportunity. Once you understand and see the world in this way, building business, building community, realizing value from community, unlocking value from community becomes extremely powerful. I mean, I've just co-founded a business called Science Magic Studios. And what we're doing there is... We're a venture token studio where we help the biggest cultural communities in the world build their token ecosystems. You know, there are music talent management businesses with reaches of a billion people. You know, what is Disney's community and IP and the sharing of that worth, right? Disney's what, a $300 billion company? My guess is the Disney tokenized ecosystem is probably worth a trillion
0: yeah because it basically adds value to things that never were had intangibles.
1: Value. yeah you turn intangibles into tangibles,
0: yeah, that is
1: new GDP, yeah and you share it with the network. So it's for all of us a way of making money,
0: yeah. it'll be interesting in twenty years. I'm going to have you come back on the podcast and we'll be talking about like the macro of those specific digital world. Of course we
1: will. Much like we talk about Brazil yeah. and Argentina, we talk exactly. about the currency, what's affecting it. People are leaving the, the network, leaving the state. Why are they leaving the state? They want to flee to somewhere else because somebody else treats their capital better or them better. There's better utility. It's the same thing. Once you see this, you don't unsee it. I mean, that, um the Balaji interview with Tim Ferriss, the last one he just did, where he talked about this, Goes through it in in more detail. I don't share all of Balaji's views on this, but yeah, it's something I've been following for a long time, and it is clear where this is going. That we will live, and the metaverse is all about this too, right?
0: It's kind of like almost the same, I would think. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, the, it's it's honestly a very interesting topic. Thinking about what does a financial crisis look like in a in a metaverse or a blockchain based game? Well,
1: has Axie Infinity had one? Yeah. You know, I'll, probably. Luna had one. Luna, Luna had its Argentina moment. Yeah. It yeah. got wiped out. Argentina's been wiped out before. And once you see it like this, you're like, oh yeah, they are currencies, even though we're trying to pretend they're not, but they kind of are. And they act from very similar forces.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, if you talk to any Forex person, they're going to, I mean, they lived through that before. What well, it's happened? Be interesting enough, I
1: just got off call earlier with one of the world's biggest hedge funds, who've built a whole digital asset business. And you know a lot of the guys that they retooled from their existing hedge fund business were two guys. One mm-hmm. were the rates guys, the money market guys, because they understand lending and credit, so they could price DeFi. The other was the emerging market currency traders, mm-hmm. because they understood volatility and, and these kind of things, what drives appreciation or depreciation of a currency.
0: Well, do you think they would agree that there's one lesson in Forex markets, which is pegs are there to be broken. But that's kind of scary if we translate that to crypto, where we obviously saw Luna's peg break, but is that something that we have to worry about across the board? Pegs, always. you know, this person I spoke to says, pegs scare me.
1: Suppressed volatility always leads to hyper volatility. It's one of the biggest truisms I've ever seen. So we had... For example, even the economy, we've gone through a period called the great moderation where volatility of the economy was very low. Then we started rupturing it and then we splintered it with the pandemic. And now we're going to see more volatility. Suppressed volatility leads to hypervolatility. It, it is a as much a truism as I've ever found. The only thing you don't know is when.
0: Well, sir, really appreciate you coming on the show. We unpacked a lot. I'm not surprised that it was this wide ranging and and fun. I want to give you a second as we close to talk about what's going on at Real Vision and the Academy, and just to let our listeners learn more about you and where they can find you, et cetera.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me obviously on Twitter. I'm very active at Raoul, R-A-O-U-L-G-M-I. I I do a a weekly show that's part of Real Vision Crypto, which we produce some incredible interviews every day of the week. That's free. Just go to realvisioncrypto.com, Uh, Sign up for that and you'll get my weekly show, which is amazing. Um, The other thing, just the exciting news we're doing is one of the things I can see online when I'm on Twitter, when I'm speaking to the Real Vision community and other stuff is everybody thought they knew how to invest until this happens. Yeah, And we've been building a trading education course for the last year and a half in stealth, which gets launched in the next two weeks. And what we've done is because we're Real Vision, we've got access to the Kind of greatest minds in finance. So we've built this entire video course with the most amazing people in the world teaching you everything from technical analysis with Tom D. Mark through to volatility trading through to portfolio construction, trade sizing. It's kind of like
0: masterclasses
1: of of finance. It's all masterclasses with a course as well through it, Mm. transcripts, and it's all part of the Real Vision Plus membership. So it's actually based around a course that I helped develop years ago with a friend of mine who was the head of prop trading in equities at Goldman. I was to sit opposite him. Then we both went to GLG, the hedge fund. He ran one fund, I ran the other. Then we both quit, and he ended up running a big family office. But he made a show called Million Dollar Traders for the BBC, where we trained oh, ordinary Jesus. people to become hedge fund managers. And he put up a million dollars of his own money, and I helped design the trading course. That ends up becoming this course that we ended up buying off uh, Lex Van Damme, and turn into this. So this is actually designed by like the head of prop trading at Goldman and hedge fund managers. It's it's unique. So just go to realvision.com forward slash the academy and check it out because it's it's bloody amazing. And these kind of things usually, again, as ever, they're usually like three thousand dollars and it's usually taught by somebody who's not even in the markets.
0: Yeah. They're just like a former real estate broker who- uh, That's right.
1: And this is entirely different. It's a total game changer. And it's part of a Real Vision Plus membership. And right now there's massive discounts on launch. So it's a good thing to do.
0: All right. Check it out. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining the show.
1: Yeah. Really enjoyed it as ever.
0: It was a lot of fun. And we'll be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.